Hello, everyone, and welcome to But I Digress, a podcast about writing, not writing, and everything in between. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of But I Digress. And this week, I'm really stoked to be talking to Annie DeWitt. And before I even introduce her, I have to say, um, she's someone that I met very briefly um, about 15 years ago. Oh my gosh, you're dating us here, Michael. Uh, <laughs> but you know what? So, so the thing is that it really speaks to, you know, there's this axiom about it's not what you know, it's who you know. And to me, this almost proves the opposite because it's not so much like who you know, but how you act. And mm. I, I feel like um, we didn't know each other and we just approached each other because we were in a, you know, context that was um, conducive to that. Um, and there was a sort of, you know, humility and mutual respect, and we chatted briefly, and I guess I must have left a decent enough impression on you that, um, you know, when I reached out to you uh, the other day to ask you to do the podcast, you, you were willing to do it, even though we actually don't know each other that well. Um, oh, I completely remember that moment. I mean, I think that's one of the things that I love about that is sort of early indie lit days um, around the time that Gigantic was launching was that um, it was just such a great community of people. So I'm, I'm really excited that you asked me to join this. And uh, it's a great name for a podcast, by the way, but I digress. I, I love it. <laughs> it's, it's pretty close to the truth of what we do, <laughs> uh, what I do. So let me introduce you, because a lot of people, unfortunately, don't know you. Um, Annie is a novelist, a short story writer, an essayist whose work has appeared in Granta, Tin House, The Believer, Guernica, Esquire, uh, Electric Literature, Noon, The Faster Times, I could go on and on. Um, She was also a co-founding editor of Gigantic, um, which I want to get back to in a little bit. Uh, Gigantic was a literary journal um, that ironically only published very short prose uh, and art. (laughs) Um, and it was carried everywhere throughout the U.S. and abroad. Um, her debut novel, White Nights in Split Town City, uh, was, was published by Tyrant Books in 2016, and it made the New York Times Book Review's shortlist, received many other accolades. Um, Annie's story collection, um, Closest Without Going Over, was shortlisted for the Mary McCarthy Prize. She's received a McDowell Fellowship. She's taught at Columbia, Barnard, Bard, Bennington, and the New School. So, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Michael. I really appreciate it. And um, yeah, I'm excited to to digress together. Okay, great. Um, you co-founded, and I mentioned this in the opening, you co-founded Gigantic with a number of other writers and people who turned out to also be successful in their own rights. And at the time, I mean, observing it a little bit from the outside, it sort of had this high school rock band feel that turned out to be like, you know, the Velvet Underground or something. Like, it, it, you know, a lot of high school rock bands get together, you know, like I know a guy who plays the bass and I know and 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 and, and maybe they play weddings and bar mitzvahs, but that's about it. Right. Um, and, 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 and you guys actually made something that mattered. Um, and I'm just wondering, how did you guys come together and what lessons did you take away from that? Well, thanks for saying that. Um, I have to say, actually, you know, it was, uh, it's good to be able to kind of 
go back in memories through the decades and realize that life has come full circle. So Alan Ziegler, who I actually represent now, um, who's a client of mine at the Shipman Agency, who's working on a fantastic memoir that's really um, like a, a love letter to New York and talks about all of the different poets and sort of famous people that he's known throughout the decades. Um, it's sort of like, you know, what Joan Didion's White Album did for California in the late 60s and early 70s. Alan's doing for like four generations of New York City artists and musicians from the 50s up until present day. Um, so oh, I can't wait to written, read that. It's, it's beautiful. It's written in this very sort of spare Ann Carson-esque um, prose. And, and anyway, all to say, um, Lincoln, Michelle, and I actually met in Alan Ziegler's short prose class. Uh, we were both in the fiction program at Columbia at the time. And we just absolutely adored the class. You know, it was the only one of its kind um, in the program, which was kind of segregated between genres. So, you know, fiction people had to kind of like stay in their lane and poets did their own thing. And nonfiction was like, I don't even know what they were doing, you know. And so yeah. Alan, um, love him as I do. He was the only one teaching a hybrid genre course. And Lincoln and I both took it. And it was really looking at what aspects of nonfiction and fiction and poetry um, can all kind of converge in this, you know, new conglomerate of short, short prose or micro fictions or prose poems. And Alan was working on um, an anthology that came out with um, Persea, and then I think Norton distributed it, um, that a piece of mine I had written, uh, my friend Anya Yurcheshen solicited a piece for Esquire, ran this really cool series called Napkin Fiction, um, where everybody got like a cocktail napkin and you had to write a short story <laughs> on the cocktail napkin. So what if I you tore that. the napkin while you were writing? I've never been yeah, able to do that. And, and, you know, I mean, there's a lot to be, who knows how drunk anyone was when they were working on these. But anyway, I remember actually taking the cocktail napkin on this trip uh, that I had was bizarrely coincided with this trip to the Bahamas that I was taking. And I, I wrote it while I was on vacation there and then brought it back. They published it and Alan ended up running it um, as part of this anthology. So it's gigantic came about, I think, really through the through Alan's class in terms of concept. Um, and Lincoln thought, yeah, you know, he's great with these kind of like ironic titles. Um, I want to credit him with coming up with the name, but it, it might have been him or James Ye. Um, and also Rosalia Jovanovic was working on this with us at the time. And, you know, it was just a really fun collaboration. Um, it, we... A bunch of us had been helping out Diane Williams with uh, the noon annual. So, and um, several folks had either been editors with her. Uh, we'd all had sort of pieces that she had published. And I think we were reading a lot of short fiction at the time. And we thought, well, you know, what if we bring out kind of a penny paper um, that's a mixture of like short prose and kind of process-based art that's exploring, you know, these mixed genres or hybrid genres. And Columbia had some sort of a grant um, that I applied for that was like Columbia Artists or something. I think it was only like $1,500, but it was enough to be able to fund. Um, I remember Rosie and Lincoln found this great printing press. I'm not sure. It might have been in New Jersey. I'm not sure where, but, you know, it really just looked like a, a newspaper. It was something that, you know, sure. like people could, it had color printing, but people could like read it on the, the subway and kind of fold it over in the way that, you know, you would a newspaper. And the idea was that it was going to be just cheap and accessible. And, um, yeah, and the format was broad, was broad, broad sheet, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And so it was just, you know, it was a really fun time. We were all graduating from the CIMFA program. I think we were all feeling kind of that weird anxiety and trepidation of 
how do you continue this artistic circle and conversation that, you know, grad school sort of provides the training wheels for, but then how do you like take your bike and ride on down the road after that? And, um, and, you know, I think one of the things I really took out of that um, was, and it makes me sound old, but I didn't even have Facebook at that time. I remember sitting in the, um, you know, Columbia lounge or whatever for the MFA program. And someone saying like, there's this thing called Facebook. And I was like, why would anybody ever want to do that? You know, like, <laughs> why, why would I ever want to put photos of myself in an online, you know, and chat with people and, and, but bizarrely enough, gigantic, I think really, um, the success of it was really based on the fact that uh, it, it coincided with this moment where, I guess people from our generation were, you know, signing up and becoming a part of it. And our first launch party, which was at Star Space out in Bushwick, um, that James Yeh had scouted, it was just a great big um, kind of like open loft area uh, that we were able to get all these people to come out that we didn't even know. So we, you know, made an event. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so this is, you know, it was like this kind of magical night where, um, we weren't sure how it was going to go. You know, we thought maybe it'll just end up being friends and people that we know. And, but we created a Facebook event, which felt like incredibly revelatory at the time because we didn't even know how this thing really worked, or at least I didn't. Um, and then all these people ended up taking the train, you know, pretty far and walking. I forget. It wasn't even that accessible by train station to get to this place. And I think we had like over 500 people on that launch party night. And um, I mean, it was wonderful. Like, friends and partners like you know helped us out as bartenders um somebody else had designed a uh bag for us that we were selling um a friend of ours andrew bolger was doing the artwork and you know so it was kind of it felt like a big success that first night and um there were a lot of trials and tribulations that followed and um i wish that we'd kept going with it for longer but it yeah it brought back a lot of great memories thinking about it Okay, there's so much to unpack in just this story and what you just said. Um, and I'd like to actually try to uh, unpack some of it. Um, and, and so one of the things that, that, you, that, that you mentioned early on when you were talking about, um, I think, uh, Alan Ziegler's first book is that, or it doesn't matter which book it was, but it was a book that was published by a really small press and then it was distributed by Norton. Yes. And that's a phenomenon I think that a lot of people aren't familiar with. And, you know, the, one of the things that I want to do with this podcast is reach people who want to be writers. But, you know, there's that whole problem of how do you do that and how do you make a living and um, Absolutely. can you make a living and what do people do and how does it work and blah, 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 right? And, and, and like, okay, so if I get published by an indie publisher, isn't that the same thing as self-publishing? And, I, you know, so how and, – and I, and, and I know that that's not the case, but could you explain a little bit – of the, you know, sort of the mechanism by which something like that takes place. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I love talking about this. Um, having had a small press book um, myself, I really, um, and now working as an agent, um, I, I really respect and, and champion um, indie presses. Um, and, you know, I think there's certainly something to be said for self-publishing as well, but there, there definitely are differences. And I think one of the things that's been exciting to watch um over the last couple decades, um, say for, so when I was a first in agent, when I moved to New York before I'd gone to grad school, um, I was working for a place called the Literary Group International. And it was sort of a, um, they were doing mostly like upmarket nonfiction and fiction and sort of like celebrity memoirs and sports memoirs and that type of thing. And um, 
I remember working out of their Soho office and just sort of like learning the ropes. And, you know, at that point, at least on my radar, you know, indie presses were um, something that agents weren't that involved in. And I think now, at least to my my own personal sort of view of the trajectory of indie publishing, it's really taken over, you know, in terms of when you look at the number of books that have been longlisted and shortlisted for the various awards over the last three decades or so, um, a lot of them are independent presses, you know, and there's right. so many strong ones out there. And there's a lot of really interesting stories. Like um, you think about like Andrea Lawler's book, Paul Takes the Form of a Mortal Girl. Um, I know that came out with an independent press originally and, and then did so well that um, I forget who, what major press took it on and brought out the reprint of it. But um, I mean, Sarah Gerard would be another author who I would think of, who I know um, really put $2 radio on the map. And then, you know, obviously. So how does it work? Um, I mean, a small press puts out a book and then do they, do they alert the larger publishers that they have relationships with? Hey, you might want to take a look at this. This deserves wider distribution. Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. It's really, from what I've observed, it's really a pretty organic process. Um, so uh, another book that comes to mind is actually that book, um, Light Boxes, that Shane Jones brought out at about the same time that Gigantic came out. And I remember we published a piece of Shane's um, in Gigantic. And it was really interesting to watch this process that you're talking about where Lightboxes came out from a small press and then, um, oh gosh, his name is eluding me, but it'll come back to me in a second. Um, an editor at Penguin, I believe, um, acquired it and rebrought it out. So all to say, I think it's, you know, if a book does really well at an indie press, um, meaning it gets a bunch of reviews and people are talking about it and, you know, it say there was supposed to be a print run of 1500 or whatever, which would be a pretty large print one for an independent press. Um, you know, if it goes into a second and third printing, um, then, you know, oftentimes the author is approached by agents or by, you know, other publishers um, who want to bring the book out in, in a way where it can reach uh, a wider audience. And I know, I mean, that was something that Gian, um, you know, bless his heart, who passed this year, who was the founder and editor of Tyrant Books that brought out White Knights. Um, you know, I think he was really cognizant of that Um he uh, wanted to, you know, obviously champion writers that he felt like um, were falling somewhat under the radar. And uh, but at the same time, you know, the minute he would sort of get behind an author, I think some of the bigger publishers would sort of turn their head and, and take a look and be like, you know, <laughs> we're we're interested in this. And um, so it's you know, I don't think there's any like recipe for it to happen in terms of um like how, you know, what process no, but it's, do, it, do you what, go what, through? I think what's important is for people to understand that it happens and that the, it does, and absolutely. That, and that the quality of the work is what matters at the end of the day. Um, yeah, that's such, I'm so glad you said that. That's the most important thing is I think, um, you know, when you think about people like, well, like Blake Butler or, you know, Sarah Gerard or any of the people um, that sort of, you know, uh, that Gian took on, Talon, Gary Lutz, you know, I mean, all of these people who started out as sort of independent press authors who we By now way, so, know. So, so who you're mentioning is uh, Giancarlo Di Trapano, who was the founder of Tyrant um, Books and who passed away this year, as you mentioned. Um, yes, exactly. I just, um, and I mean, another um, press, I think that is similar is Zank. Um, yeah. I think that you know, I think publishers respect their, uh, Dan Wickett in particular, right? His eye, yep. um, they, they, you know, so they pay attention. 
Oh, for sure. I mean, honestly, I can't tell you the, in just in the last week, I've gotten like three emails from, um, either editors or authors or, um, friends who have said like, you know, can you send me a really good comprehensive list of like the, the indies that are, you know, the sort of great, strong, independent indies. And I'm like, gosh, you know, there's so many that I could mention. Um, a few that I really, really love. Um, I mean, you mentioned Dzeang. I love what they do. Um, Sarah Band is also wonderful. They have an open reading period right now for fiction. Um, the Dzeang actually has an open fiction and nonfiction reading period right now. Um, one of my authors, uh, Amy Benson, was the winner of the um, 2019 Zayac Nonfiction Prize for her awesome, awesome um, hybrid essay collection, um, 10 Years to Zero, that's looking at like environmental degradation and climate change, um, but through this really interesting lens of art. So it's like all of these sort of fictionalized short story essays about artists doing art about climate change. Um, other great uh, indie you know, publishers, um, Grey Wolf is obviously fantastic. I, I don't even know if I can say that they qualify as an indie press anymore because yeah. they're such, such a, um, a powerhouse. Um, Fence Books also has a fantastic books division. Um, Soft Skull, Catapult. Um, who else? Gosh. Uh, you know, I was just sending this list to a friend the other day. Um, whew. Well, I mean, well, people can do their own research, um, the, but but I think the the important thing is to know that um, you know the indie press route is is not just viable; it's actually very vibrant. It's extremely um, vibrant. I mean, a couple of others, Coffee House Press is fantastic. Course, they yep. just took on a new great um, EIC there. New Directions, Deep Vellum, Wave, Akashic, um, Persia. Uh, I mean, it, yeah, the list goes goes yeah. on and on. Um, also, another really interesting press that I just had a great phone conversation with their new editor um, is Bold Type Books. Um, and they, I believe, were originally um, part of The Nation. Um, and now this is sort of their new imprint. Um, but they are taking on, they're based in Canada, um, but they're taking on manuscripts with a focus on sort of similar to like Guernica, I would say that the great online magazine with a focus on sort of where the personal meets the political. Um, so, right. yeah. And I mean, these are really, you know, fantastic presses. I think um, a lot of them, again, you know, we're seeing more and more indie press books, um, like being on shortlist and long list for awards. And, you know, one of the difficulties of working with an indie press is I think there's a lot of um, pressure put on the author to really work on your own promotion and all of that. But at the same time, um, you know, I have friends that have gotten like six figure book deals at the, you know, major presses who, um, who had, you know, their own publicists and all those things whose books didn't do nearly as well as a bunch of indie books, um, you know, with much smaller teams where the author was really just out there hustling themselves, you know? Yeah. So let's talk about, um, let's, let's talk about the beginnings so for, um, where did you grow up and when did you decide that you wanted to become a writer? <laughs> when did you realize you were a writer? <laughs> when did all, when did life start going down the tubes? No, I'm just, I'm just <laughs> joking. <laughs> uh, I mean, I don't know. I think like everybody who's a creative probably has that sort of feeling or streak, you know, ever since they were a child. Um, one of the things I was sort of laughing about in your list of questions that you 
had sent me was, um, you know, you're like, you're originally from the South. And I was like, that's something that's so interesting and came up um, a lot around White Nights was that I'm actually, so I grew up in a rural town, but it was a Northern rural town um, in Massachusetts. So uh, it was like in central Massachusetts, but I grew up on a like small dead end um, dirt road there, you know, in a place where people had horses and it, um, there was a lot of focus on like nature and, and the outdoors. And I mean, things that I, I carry with me to this day. And, um, and I really, you know, loved the kind of um, remoteness, I think of that landscape. And there was also just something about that time period. And this was something I tried to touch on a little bit in white nights is, you know, it, it, it was that sort of last moment in time before, your soul or your body was trackable with, with GPS. I mean, we didn't have cell phones. We didn't, you know, like we didn't have internet, like all of those types of things, you know? So, um, uh, you know, I I think part of my like early reading really happened because um, my dad read a lot. And so he sort of passed on his quirky interest in writers like Susan Sontag and that type of thing. And James Baldwin, um, and then partly just because I lived in a fairly rural, isolated place and really, like, I think reading provided kind of a place to escape to. Um, but then flash forward, I guess, 2003, I was graduating from college. And at that point, I was on a track to be a child um, neuropsychologist. I had worked with um, this guy, Sebastiano Santo Stefano, who had a children's institute in Wellesley, Massachusetts. And um, he had worked at McLean Hospital that kind of famous psychiatric hospital in Boston um, where a bunch of artists had gone. And uh, my first job out of college working with them was to go be a translator in Spain for um, a group of children's orphanages called Aldeas Infantiles. Uh, And they were working on a book looking at trauma and how it affects um, children's ways of like cognitively processing experience. So he was looking at these things called like levelers and sharpeners, like, I really loved that work. And, um, you know, I think what I realized, though, also was that it really allowed me to explore my love for language. Like I had really I'd taken Spanish since, you know, whenever I'd been first able to take it in public school as a teenager and then taking it up through college. And it was a really different experience to be able to go work in another country in another language where I was really working on translating stories, you know, and, and thinking about how words mean. And I, at that point, I kind of had a, a personal I guess a crisis of uh, of faith, you could call it, where I had been setting myself up for this sort of storied career in child psychology and then um, realized that I, I just really would have, I, I think I had that like young 20 something realization of like, if I don't try to be a writer now, I'll like regret it my whole life type of thing. Um, so it was a long path to try to climb my way up from there. I think I really felt like I had somehow even before I got started as a writer, I felt like I had somehow failed, you know, I had like had this other career in mind and then gave it up. And, um, and I started, I moved to Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I worked as a bookseller for an independent bookstore for probably five years or so. Um, My then partner and I lived in uh, Central Square in Cambridge, and I could walk to work and I just, you know, I loved it. And I just was working on stories, trying to write my way into grad school. Um, And I have to say, I think even my current job now today as a literary agent and really the whole trajectory of my literary career over the last decade or so, a lot of it I would attribute to um, 
the group of people that I met at Harvard Bookstore, which it's not associated with like Harvard, Harvard, the college, it's, mm-hmm. it's the independent bookstore in town. Um, that was sort of a turning point for me. And then after that, you know, I wrote and moved to New York and um, a couple of years later, I, I worked as a literary agent and then eventually went to Columbia for my fiction MFA and the rest uh, went from there. So having had that background as a, as a literary agent before you even got your MFA, you must have known that the odds of making a living as a writer of being a Don DeLillo <laughs> or, a, you know, right, were like yeah. infinitesimal. So how do you, do you talk yourself into this career? Like, how did you see yourself like um, organizing your life in a way that you could be the writer you wanted to be, but still earn a living? useful ignorance (laughs) (laughs) um you know i i feel like i think really differently about it so i last uh october actually and i I, you know one of the things i really laugh to myself about is like the things that are important to you in your early 20s you know i mean it was like everything to me to write a, a novel and to get it published and that was like the be all end all of what i was trying to do for like a decade from my early 20s to early 30s and and I love those years and like the neurotic passion of like living in a seven foot wide studio, you know, with my partner, we had like one window out onto the Hudson and we had everything in storage and we like waited until 7 PM to like go to the salad bar because it was like 50% off, you know? And like, I walked to my, like one of my many like gig jobs at uh, the Princeton review where I was helping them edit their like best colleges and best law school series. And I mean, you know, just all of the crazy freelance stuff that you have to do as a writer to survive. And then Mm -hmm. like walking over to the, the Hungarian pastry shop on the Upper West Side. And that's where I wrote a good deal of white nights because, you know, the apartment was just so small. It was like to be able to get out and sit and have a coffee with your computer somewhere was like a luxury, you know? Um, But I think uh, now there's been sort of a change for me. I think in my twenties, I would have felt I had such a burning desire to tell my own story and to write and do all of those things. And I, I am still working on um, a, a novel myself, but I think that like desire somehow got like transmuted or translated into um, really almost like back to those days of when I thought I was going to be a psychologist. Like I think agenting is sort of similar to that where you take, <laughs> it is, you know, you take on clients and you kind of like, half of it is is editing because you're helping them edit the manuscript to get it ready and then half of it is just being a liaison and and you know using all these connections after having been in New York for you know over a decade and and working in the indie lit scene and being a part of Columbia and all of that like it's been really great to see where everybody's migrated like Perul Segal who was my year but she was nonfiction, is now you know head of the New York Times like book review and you know so everybody's like gone out and I think we have this sort of amazing network and web where um it's been fun to watch friends like Lisa Lucas and her trajectory um you know like so it's it's great I think as the decades go by to realize that like that passion for art that maybe is sort of ego driven in your 20s where you're like oh I want to be a writer and you know all of those things um now I really enjoy actually helping other writers use those networks that I've built um, as a way of getting their own work out there. Um, that's really fascinating. And, you know, I mean, until the pandemic forced you to shut down, you, you were running a writer's retreat 
And it seems to me from what you're saying and from what I know about you that you really, you enjoy the idea of a writing and, and maybe even brought more broadly an artistic community. Um, is yeah, that, absolutely. Do you, so and, you know, when you think about moments in time in literary history, and you know, here I am sort of, we're talking about you know, what kind of jobs you get when you're trying to be a writer. And now I'm going to switch to <laughs> this broad thing about like, well, the modernists, right? Or um, <laughs> uh, the expressionists. But like, I mean, there was a sense of, so the modernists, they were ob- absolutely a community. I mean, you know, yeah. Ezra Pound famously edited James Joyce, um, although he gave him bad advice sometimes. And fortunately, Joyce didn't listen to him. <laughs> but, but there was that community, right? And of course, Pound that thankfully um, edited T.S. Eliot. And then, um, yeah. you know, in the New York school, you had um, Kenneth Koch and Ashbery yeah. all hanging out with, you know, Larry Rivers and the other painters. And so I'm wondering, how do you, so do you think that, how important do you think that is to, you know, to the creation of, of great fiction? I think it's everything. I, I I love that you bring up all those writers and, and you and Alan Ziegler have to hang out at some point because his short prose class was really all about that. It was looking at like French writers, turn of the century French writers, um, like Mallarmé and Baudelaire and, mm-hmm. and Poe and, you know, and this, like, yeah, exactly. Who were like hanging out with all these visual artists and then, you know, started writing these like micro um journalistic pieces basically you know that became like micro nonfiction, micro essays um that really became the bedrock of prose poetry and then like you were saying the american school you know i think in the late 50s and then early 60s of like poets that were also really i think um based in the visual arts i want to say you know yeah (laughs) like i remember i think in my application essay for columbia i was saying like you know i think writing is in art as much as visual art like there is a process of mark making that you know writers like gary lutz or diane williams who really focus on how to make a sentence and you know where do sounds repeat themselves and um the staccatos of s's and t's and those types of things like you know i mean that's no different than talking about something like pointillism right you know and, yeah. and how do a bunch of things come together to form a whole um but yeah i I sort of, I think, lament the fact that um, we live in a time where we don't necessarily, like, have those sort of, like, senses of the salons, or maybe I just, like, romanticize a sense of the past that never existed. I'm not sure, but... Um, but you I, were part of a literary salon. You just didn't call it that. Yeah, you know, I, I guess so. And maybe that's where... Um, I think the Roxbury Writers Residency, so uh, my partner, Jerome Jakubiak, who's a photographer, um, and I met like over a decade ago in New York, right when I had finished uh, Columbia and lived in that crazy seven foot one. You know, he was working a lot on photos and I was writing my first book. And um, I think that that collaborative process was really influential. And then we went on to start the Roxbury Writers Residency um, at this old uh, dairy farm that we bought up in the Catskills um, like I mean for a song like it, it it was we didn't have internet it was on a dirt road um, it, it yeah, was for, sort of for, like for, for those of you who are listening and, and, and can't picture um, what upstate New York looks like there are literally um, shells of farms that are sort of barely standing yeah. on huge patches of land and I think that the people who have to pay taxes on those would 
like pay you to take it off their hands. <laughs> yeah, it was exactly that type of situation. I mean, we had three raccoons living in the ceiling of the kitchen when we moved in that would like pop up through the ductwork in the house. So we'd be like, you know, sleeping and wake up and see like a raccoon popping up through the ductwork <laughs> in the floor. And But we really enjoyed running that. And I think we would have kept going with it. Um, so the setup that we had, we brought um, five to six writers up for these like four day retreats um and we would do workshops and craft classes and um and then in the end it culminated in a editors and agents panel um and that's actually how i met leslie so how i found my current job um leslie shipman who founded the shipman agency where uh, I work now, um, came up with Yuka Igarashi, who um, everybody probably knows just became um, the head of Grey Wolf, and she's had a long and great career. Yuka and I were in the first our first fiction workshop together years back, um, and it's been really fun to watch her career progress. She was a granta um, and then came to the U.S. and was the head of like Catapult Soft School, and now she's gone on to, to um, head up uh, Gray Wolf. So um, that's another one of those great sort of trajectories. But she um, and Sarah Blakely Cartwright, um, who's also done amazing things, um, the three of them came up and uh, I put them up at this like horse farm sanctuary called the Rosemary Horse Farm Sanctuary, where we used to volunteer um, just shoveling manure and stuff for the cows that work there. But any uh, the horses that were there. But anyway, they came up and had a editors and agents panel. Um, for the writers that were there and the writers read you know their works so that the agents and editors could hear it and then there was a kind of question and answer period and i woke up a couple weeks later after that and had had, had a dream um and just that i'd gone back to agenting and i called leslie and i was like look i really wouldn't want to do this for any other agency it's not like oh i'm dying to you know like all i'm gonna email all these people and see what agency i can go work for i just really connected with her vision you know i think that agency um is uh you know i mean it's female founded and run and she's really built up i think the premier speakers agency in the city she has an incredible list of clients like i mean like garth greenwell and alex chi and i mean the list goes on and on um but and is really enviable the, the work that she's put into it so I drove down to the city, we had dinner and she was like, you know, I'm looking to expand. And I was like, well, why don't I be your, your literary arm? And, you know, you don't have a literary agent working there yet. And she was taking on an independent publicist at that time and a few other folks. So, um, it was just sort of perfect timing. And, uh, unfortunately COVID marked the end of the writer's residency because we couldn't host people, you know, in person right. any longer. Um, so we sort of, um, in a bit of a heartbreak, had to, uh, we ended up selling the farm, which um, was, was, you know, both a blessing and a heartbreak in terms of, um, it, it was fun. It was this like dream place that we thought, sort of thought we would be forever. But then in that moment where everybody was moving out of the city, we had this old farmhouse that we had, you know, like hand renovated and painted ourselves. And um, so we sold it and that um, sort of gave me the launching pad to be able to take the next year or so to start building my list of authors at the agency. So it all kind of worked out bizarrely enough. Well, I mean, and it's, it, it is a shame about the, um, the retreat, but um, it also sounds like um, you're, I would, I would, I would be shocked if you didn't have something else like that in the next five years, because that seems to be something that you um, 
um, that you like to do is to connect with people and connect people together. Um, Absolutely. Because even the writers retreat itself. I mean, so you connected with all those writers and they connected with each other. And then at the end, you had them connect with agents and publishers. So you're, you're, you're really, um, you are, you are the, you know, you're the, you're the, you're the, you're the fiber of a network or something like that. Um, (laughs) Thanks, Michael. Yeah, I guess I realized, like, I think sometimes it takes a while to find your career, whatever career path means, but as an artist, and I, I feel like one of the things I realized that, like, you know, beyond having been a teacher for a decade, which I had kind of burnt out on because adjunct teaching is its own like kind of deadly hamster wheel. Um, And I had been a visiting professor at a number of places and, um, but I, I actually got offered a a tenure track job um, at a school in Virginia and I I was really thrilled to be offered it. But I, um, I think I realized I just didn't want to like move our entire lives um, to this place. And it like, it it was sort of the thing that I'd been trying to do for a decade was like get this tenure track job offer. And instead um, I realized like, I think the thing that I need to do next is try to just be that connector piece for people, you know? Um, It's amazing how often we think we want something and then it turns out that wasn't really what we wanted. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, You know, I wanted to ask you something It changed a little bit. Um, uh, the digression um, um, <laughs> I, about 10 years ago um, I, I was I had a job and I, I, I came home and um, my wife at the time and, and daughter were watching um, a rerun of the Dick Van Dyke show oh um, my gosh yep because it was like the 50 year anniversary and for those of you who don't know um, the Dick, it, Dick Van Dyke was a character who played um, like an advertising writer yeah. And in, in the, the premise of this episode, I walked in on it right in the middle, but uh, the, the premise seemed to be that he'd won some kind of award and so was being interviewed by a magazine writer. <laughs> and he's sitting on the couch with his wife, Mary Tyler Moore, right? And, um, and he says to the writer, so what magazine are you with again? And, and, and the guy says, oh, I'm with, you know, XYZ. Before, we used to be called something else before. And actually last year I was with this other, you know, uh, magazine but you know the publishing industry today it's just a nightmare <laughs> and this was 1964 5 right it yeah. was like what we look back as the golden age of publishing yeah and even then they're going they're bemoaning the state of the magazine and the publishing industry right and so i wonder um you know today i hear and i think every writer is particularly struggling writers or people who are trying to become writers or trying to break through like all anyone hears is, and I mean, I used to hear this before my collection of story was published. And then it was like, well, you know, it's just the industry is consolidating and no one wants to take any chances. And yeah. it's just not like it used to be. And even people have said, you know, if your book were presented today, it wouldn't get published. And so it's like, is it just this reflexive thing where we're always just going to say it, it, you know, it's not like right. it used to be? Or is it really not like it used to be? Or does it matter? I I mean, I've mulled over this question too so many times. I mean, and I, you know, your example of of the Dick Van Dyke show, like the the one I always think about is actually the the Hunter S. Thompson example of like, you know, he wrote that kind of seminal essay, like the Kentucky Derby is decadent and depraved by Mm -hmm. lying his way into the Kentucky Derby press room um, by saying that, you know, he was working for Playboy, but really he was working for this like really tiny magazine called like Scribner's or whatever, you know? Um, And, but you're like, yeah, 
you were writing like you worked for the magazine you, you know to us we're like wow that seems just so romantic the idea that those <laughs> magazines had like writers that they actually paid to go do things you know um so I agree I definitely romanticize or you know you think about Joan Didion I think in a lot of introductions to her essay collection she talks about that too like she was like a paid reporter like she could live on what she was making writing for these different magazines you know and, and nowadays I definitely feel like that just does not exist you know um for except for a small handful of writers that either you know sell a book for a major seven-figure deal and then that sort of sets them up for the rest of time um, or the very small handful of writers that somehow, you know, do make a big enough name for themselves as magazine writers that they essentially still, you know, they're like a, a New Yorker writer or something. And like, there's a few people like that, that maybe write for the New Yorker or Harper's. Um, but even them, they probably like adjunct teach on the side. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but, you know, one thing I will say on the hopeful end of things is, um, and I see this, I think about this a lot now as an agent is, uh, I do think that there's been some democratization of um, the ability for writers to build their platform through the internet, you know? And so I, I talked about Facebook and how that had, you know, being able to like at, for free advertise this like launch party, you know, that 500 people ended up coming to. Um, I think like in a lot of ways, um, internet writing itself has been kind of a double-edged sword where, you know, there's in some ways writers are writing for free because they're like writing all this content for magazines or blogs or websites, you know, for basically nothing, you know, or for pennies or whatever, you know, to, to be like a, a blogger for, well, you know, any, like any of the magazines that have online sites. Um, and yet at the same time, it has given, everybody and anybody that has access to internet and, and a computer or a way to get to a computer, um, a place to build a platform, you know, that wasn't really available before. Um, and there's been, you know, a lot of people that have really made great use of that. Um, I think of Yadon Israel, who's um, now senior editor at Simon and Schuster um, and has really, you know, had this phenomenal trajectory from, um, working on this, um, you know, reading group and, and then the sort of hashtag lit swag and, um, and, you know, becoming an influencer within the community, um, and, and, you know, and a sort of disruptor in the community of, um, you know, the, the ideas of traditional literary acquisitions. I was just talking to him the other day about his path. And, um, so I think that, you know, there are new ways of, of like, making it as an artist and a writer. But I think um, one of the things I kind of lament is that, and I went through this myself, having an independent press book is uh, that so often writers and artists are probably like empaths and, you know, um, not necessarily always the most social people, although some certainly are, but um, you kind of have to become your own spokesperson or your own PR person nowadays. Yeah. And, you know, um, it's not like you have to have a social media presence, but um, you know, editors do ask when I pitch things like, well, what's, you know, what's their literary community? And, you know, a writer who already has support within a specific sort of community and people who are willing to write blurbs or friends who would do events. And if you can place them within a certain sort of sphere, that that helps. Yeah, no, I, I think that that's true. I and, and, You know, oddly enough, coming back to the whole idea of literary salons and such, I mean, I think that that was kind of 
part of it too, right, was they would support each other, um, even if they didn't like each other, right? I mean, it was just sort of part of the, it was, it, it, it was part of the ecosystem. Um, and, and, yeah. and, and they, you know, they would write reviews for one another or uh, blurbs or, you know, show up at um, parties. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's funny because I think that we're, 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 what people think of as a writing career is something that basically had a 40-year window, you know. Um, yeah. You know, when publishers could have a, a mass audience of educated people with disposable income and time. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, I think that uh, for the rest of history, it's been, it has been a matter of, you know, being the court jester and to be the court jester, you kind of have to be pretty entertaining, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that, um, you know, when I think about, I mean, it's funny because I don't think that I would have been particularly good at many things if I had been a hunter gatherer, you know? Um, <laughs> I think, I think I, 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 you know, um, I don't think I would have been very good at identifying um, non-poisonous plants. Um, I probably would have gotten gored by a boar. Um, and, and so I, I think that my, you know, I would have tried to be the, you know, the guy who tells stories around the campfire at night because there was probably a need for that at the end of a long yep. day. Um, but you had to be good at it, right? You had to really be good at it. Um, otherwise, why would they share, you know, because, you know, it's just a matter of like, could you just share a piece of that lamb shank there for you? Know? Yeah. Um, and I think that that's just been, I think that uh, if you're a writer on a certain level, you can't, you know, think of yourself as um, one of these gilded people, you know, floating around penthouses with beautiful views of the city. That's just mm -mm. not yeah. going to, that, that's not realistic. I mean, it could happen, but it's not something to peg your, peg your career on. Yeah. I mean, in a way, it reminds me a lot of... Um... Jane Jennings book about you know urbanism the life and death of great American cities where she talks about the sidewalk and and you know urban spaces and the idea of like the characters of urban spaces that play an interesting role in creating a narrative like you're mm -hmm. saying you know somebody um who like you know works at the bodega but who also like collects all the keys for like people when they're like oh hey I'm going away for the weekend but like my friends are coming in I'm going to drop off my keys and they'll, they'll come in and get it and you know I mean all these sort of like silent roles that um different sort of like I almost would want to call it like social entrepreneurs um you know inhabit and I think like in a way that idea of social entrepreneurialism has um, translated into the internet era through this idea of influencers or tastemakers or, you know, whatever the idea that writers or artists have to have to like build their own platform in a way. And, and two, to your point that, you know, I think in the late sixties, early seventies, there was, um, well, there was this book called the program era that Mark McGurl published not that long ago. I want to say like 2012, maybe um, that was about like, you know, the birth of MFA programs, which really aren't that old when you think right. about it. Like, you know, the Iowa's right, Iowa writers workshop being one of the oldest and the fame, the most sort of famed, um, you know, is, that was something that Alan Ziegler used to talk a lot about in his class, Writer as Teacher, which was a class that I inherited from him and taught at Columbia for a number of years um, about what is the role of artist as teacher, you know, and it was interesting to look at this book, The Program Era, you know, them talking about in the 70s, it was like, okay, well, if you're a writer or a, a poet or whatever, you know, schools were like, 
begging for people to come on and and teach something different than what the traditional PhD English program was yeah. like offering, you know. So um, there were like this plethora and and of jobs that started opening up as MFAs became a much debated but you know kind of trendy thing, you know. Um, and now. Gosh, I mean, I think the whole thing has gone completely full circle where you've got, you know, a host of MFA programs that sort of act as cash cows for universities because a lot of them are pretty much unfunded, you know. Um, So, yeah, artists come in and either, you know, take on a lot of debt to be a part of it or have independent wealth that they end up spending on it. And um, I think, you know, one of my critiques of the system, having worked in it for over a decade and taught at all these different schools is just um I, I i think the way that artists have now become these kind of very disposable adjunct laborers that you know no longer have access to health insurance or salary or any kind of permanence in the way that we you know in the way that what we, you contribute to the university be it curriculum um or thesis advising or office hours you know stuff that you're asked to do as these as basically as a kind of gig job um that you're never then sort of reimbursed for um is is really problematic you know um it's i think there's a feeling that the artist and its relationship to the university with an mfa program is somewhat disposable or or rotating um and i feel like jobs that once had a lot more stability to them um are, are sort of harder and harder to come by yeah no, I, I, I think that's true. But the flip side of that is that you still get um, what you got, which is that sort of um, uh, that network, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you got that. Um, I, before we run out of time, um, I, there's one question I wanted to ask you. Having Being someone that's been on both sides of the fence, so to speak, at the, and literally – at the same time, what do you think writers should know about agents that they don't know? <laughs> um, the number one thing I would say is just uh, you sort of only have one silver bullet um, in terms of I can't tell you the number of times that I've been heartbroken to have to email a writer whose query really interested me, you know, I was like, Oh gosh, this sounds fantastic. And like, they've got a great bio and, you know, they're coming out of either a life experience or an MFA program or something that interested me, or, you know, um, even just the way that they talked about like the themes that they're writing about seems, you know, great. And I get to the manuscript and I see so much promise there, but I can tell it's something that like, you know, was, this is a second or third draft of something that probably needs like five drafts. And it's like, it's just not quite there yet. Like there's holes in the narrative or like, you know, there's some confusion over characters or plot or whatever it is um, that's missing. And it, it's just so tough to email the writer back at that point and basically say like, you jumped the gun, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. like my one advice would really be like, it's worth spending the time getting the manuscript absolutely to the point that's like the very best of what you're capable of delivering um, because it's really hard. It takes hours to go through someone to actually read a 300 page manuscript, you know, and devote that kind of time to it. And especially when you're 
you know, you're agenting and you're getting all these queries and you're also trying to divide your time between, you know, reading new queries, but then all the work of like working with the people that you've taken on and helping them edit manuscripts and pitching those manuscripts to editors and meetings and lunches. Like, you know, there isn't all that much time for looking through slush and queries. And um, so if you've, if you've gotten to the point where you've interested an agent enough through your query that they've actually opened the file and they're reading it, you want that file to be as good and as polished as, as possible. And the number of times that I've been like, uh, this just sort of, you know, it could have been so perfect and, it, but it just sort of wasn't done yet. And I know there's a lot of pressure, especially on young writers, um, you know, to, write something and get your work out there and get an agent. So you feel like, Oh my God, yes, I have an agent. And I'm, you know, I haven't just like thrown my life down the tubes and, and I totally get that anxiety. Um, but the truth is like, you've kind of only got one shot to turn somebody's head and it's really hard from an agenting perspective to like have to go back to a manuscript that like you, you were really excited about, but you haven't yet acquired. And, and then they like, I've even emailed comments to some, you know, to folks and then they send back, Two weeks later, you know, minor revisions when I, what I was really suggesting maybe would have taken like a year, you know, um, and, and it's not about like, oh, I need you to cross your T's on page 63 or whatever. It's like, no, the, you know, the central narrative, like the propelling force is, is missing. Like that's something that's going to take a real radical revision to get it there, you know. I think that that comes back to what I think we started talking about at the very beginning, which is the importance of community. Because yeah. I think, and so I'm thinking about a friend who reached out to me a, a couple of weeks ago. His wife had just written uh, a very compelling narrative. And, you know, he asked me, he's not a writer, he's in technology, and um, she's a public school teacher. And um, it was kind of, she was, it was kind of a memoir-based novel, I guess. Um, and, um, you know, I asked her, where she thought she was at with it. She said, well, as far as I'm concerned, it's done. And I asked her to send it to me and it was, you know, about 60 pages. Um, and there were some really good parts to it, but it was completely undeveloped and had right. a lot of, and, you know, I think that, um, you know, I, I basically had to tell her, um, and I'm not, it's a not ready, agent, <laughs> but, but right. But, you know, no one around her, and, and, and her husband, my friend, came back to me afterwards. I said, I'm sorry, I hope I wasn't too rough because I was basically, you have to decide if this is a novel or a memoir. And then you have to, you know, it, 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 it probably should be a novel and you need to uh, you know, do X, Y, and Z to develop it more. Um, and, it, it, you know, I then, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, texted him and said, I hope that it wasn't too rough. <laughs> yeah. And he said, no, you she needed to hear it, but you were the only person that could who could say it, that. right? Because no one around her, right, was in in, in a writing or editing position, and yeah. um, so I think it's really important if you're a writer um, to show your work to other writers or editors and be prepared to be told that it's not close to ready. You know? Yeah, and no, and to your point, like the community is so important. Like you know, be, become part of a writer's workshop a group of friends where you you know read each other's work once a month and and put your manuscript through a workshop and see what other people have to say about it not because they're right but just because i think having a good group of readers and and if you can writing a manuscript and putting it away for a little while even you know six months or something and giving it some time to settle um 
so that you can look at it with fresh eyes because it's it's hard to work on a book and then you know come back to it and be able to know what to do with it um and i mean that said i think also on the other side of the door um in terms of community like i think the literary agent community sort of needs to do a, a better job too about thinking about um you know, the way in which we want to represent uh, ourselves to writers who are reaching out. I can't tell you the number of times, like, I was actually thinking about this last night, like, I sort of have one night a week where I go through the slush pile of my emails and I either forward things that I think are really interesting to um, my assistant, Mary Alice, who sort of works freelance for me when I need some extra help, and and or I send everybody a rejection. And one thing I really committed myself to, and luckily so far I've been able to stay up with it, is like I try to get back to absolutely everybody that emails me. And the number of people that literally write me back thanking me for rejecting their manuscript. I mean, this just happened to me last night. I get emails from people saying like, you have no idea in this like cold-hearted world of trying to get published, like how meaningful it is to get an email back from somebody to know that your manuscript even made it to them. And, and you know, I'm not sending huge long rejections. I'm just sending something that says like, thanks for the opportunity. And like, you know, if I've read it, then I send them a couple sentences about what I think was strong and what I thought needed work and why I'm passing on it. I mean, nothing more than like three sentences, but those three sentences mean a lot to someone, you know, and in terms of creating community, I, I think that's also why I wanted to go back to agenting was like, I want to agent in the way that I want to do it with like responsibility and like compassion and empathy as much as I can. So I usually have two questions at the end that I ask people. Um, and one of them you already answered, which is what would you have been if you hadn't been a writer? Um, and, but, the, but the other one is almost as important, and that is um, what's your relationship to books? Do you dog-ear them, Phys your physical relationship to books? Oh, God, yes. I'm like, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, like, massacrist. I feel like I dog-ear them. I write in them. Um, I've definitely been guilty, I think, in college of, like, taking books out of the library and, like, putting, like, you know, margin notes in them and then, like, returning them. Um, so <laughs> and I somebody am, has to uh, figure out what the hell you meant. Yeah, exactly. Um, oh, undergrad. And, in, and in my, my other, other career, I would be um, a racehorse rider. Oh, so. wow, that's awesome. See? <laughs> that's fantastic um i thought i knew but i um and, <laughs> i knew that um um yeah i love I, by the way i love the smell of books i don't know if that makes any sense to you but i love i do too you know i don't own a, a tablet um i'm not one of those people that's like worried that physical printing is gonna end just because people listen to audiobooks or whatever i think people that love books like love them as art objects, you know, and we appreciate the like cover art that went into them and, you know, the typeset and, and mm -hmm. the pages and, um, and I mean, that was one of the things I'm most looking forward to when I sort of finally move into, um, a more permanent place after having sold the Catskills is being able to get, uh, a library back up and going, you know, and, and curate all my books again. So I'm looking forward to that. Annie, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. I'm so grateful that you agreed to do this and um I hope likewise i'm i i'm sure i hope our listeners will have enjoyed it as much as i did well thanks so much for having me and um anybody who wants to send a query my way um it's annie at the shipmentagency.com um and i'll also just do a little plug for um the shipment agency also has um something called writer's room um where a bunch of leslie's clients have been running online 
classes and, and workshops. Um, and those have been extremely popular and been getting a lot of great feedback. So um, check it out. Okay. Thanks for that awesome. plug. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Michael. I hope I get to see you in person sooner than later. Yeah, me too. Okay, Bye-bye. take care. You've been listening to But I Digress, a podcast about writing, not writing, and everything in between. I'm your host, Michael Hickens. If you like what you just heard, want to find more episodes, or want to know more about me, visit my website at michaelmissing.com.